Hey, this is John and Tim at the Bauer Project. Yes. This podcast is generally a just a long discussion between you and I <laughs> yeah. about uh, biblical theology preparing for videos that we're making. Yeah, that's right. And so just you and I bantering. Yep. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. Well, banter, uh, discussing yeah. theology. Yeah. Yeah. I'm your student. And one day you came to me and said, you know what would be really cool? As I'm reading all these books preparing for these talks, yeah. it'd be so rad to be able to interview some of these scholars yeah. and just pick their brains some more. Yep. So we're starting to line those up. Yeah. Yeah, every Bible Project video begins with a huge stack of books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me, and some of them are just like, whoa. Yeah, every time we think of a new video we want to make, Tim's like, sweet, I got like four books I want to read. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so... Yeah, so as we were prepping for quite a while um, for the Spiritual Being series, but one of the books I came across um, was by a scholar at Yale uh, named Matthew uh, Crosman. He is a research scholar at Yale Divinity School. Um, and then I also found out he's planted a church and uh, is, is a pastor at a local church there. And really sharp guy. And he, he wrote this fascinating book called The Emergence of Sin. Mm-hmm. Sin as the Cosmic Tyrant, yeah. Paul's letter to the Romans. And it was stimulating in a million ways. One is, uh, half of it is about science, philosophy of <laughs> science, yeah. and this thing called emergence theory. And which, if you know us, we kind of, uh, yeah. every once in a while, geek out about yeah. physics and yeah. cosmology and yeah. as much as we can. That's right. Mm-hmm. We just jump right in. Yeah. It's an idea that's fascinating me for a long time. Yeah. And it's just basically, yeah. uh, the way you described it, Tim, was what does it mean for something to exist, yes. to be real, yeah. and to have its own uh, volition mm-hmm. and power. And us as a human, like we exist, but mm-hmm. we're just a bunch of cells, <laughs> which are a bunch of atoms. Right. And so at what point does something become something? Yeah. And philosophers and yep. physicists, are all thinking about this and realizing there's something real that happens when a collection of parts becomes a whole. And that thing becomes greater than the collection of parts. So then the sum of his parts. Yeah, so he was already interested in that. Uh, But then he uh, also noticed that in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul will use the word sin to refer to stupid things people do. Mm -hmm. But then he'll also use the word sin to describe what sounds like a person. Mm. that it enslaves people, it rules them, it captures and deceives them. Sin has a body, in Paul's thought. He has this phrase, the body of sin, Mm. talking of what sounds like a person. So uh, these two ideas combined in his mind, and he wrote this fascinating book that just opened my imagination to some new ways of thinking about the powers of evil and sin in Paul's thought and in a, a worldview shaped by the Bible. So... Matthew Crosman said yes to talking to us, and so we got to um, have a long conversation with him. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's yep. talk with Matt. Yep. Matt, thank you for talking with us today and taking the time. Ah, so glad to be here. So we are talking with you, one, because I was doing a series of projects for the Bible Project in Paul's letters and your book, I think I read a review of it on Scott McKnight's blog, Jesus Creed, and it was glowing and so positive and it addressed issues that I was have been interested in for a long time. So I picked it up and mind blown in the helpful way. 
uh, and my imagination was expanded. So first of all, thank you. Thank you for the time you invested in that book. I'm sure it required many lonely nights. <laughs> yeah, I know. This, this is the work of the uh, Bible scholar, right? You like, do all this work, and your thought is like, someday like, as many as like, a half a dozen people might, might read what you, what you write. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Before we uh, dive into talking about uh, the ideas in, in the book, um, tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Yale, where you came from, um, and how you got interested in biblical studies. Oh yeah, so I I uh, I was a music major in college, and uh, and I, I was at, at Yale as an undergrad. I've been out here uh, for for a good long time now. But we had a language requirement, as I'm sure many colleges do, and uh, I didn't want to take a living language because that intimidated me. So I was I thought I'll take a dead language. That'll be fun. <laughs> and uh, just because I, I don't know, I didn't have to go listen to tapes or like record my voice or whatever. So. And it was tapes back then. This was before digital. But um, all to say, I, I thought like, oh, yeah, I'll do a dead language. And somewhere back in my mind, I remembered that some part of the Bible was written in Greek. Um, I probably couldn't even have told you like which parts. But I, I thought, OK, well, between Latin and Greek, I'll do Greek. And um, honestly, that, that was sort of like how it all started. Whoa, and then wow. I was terrible at Greek, actually. But by the time I chugged through what I needed to, I felt like, well, I might as well read the Bible if that was somewhere in the back of my mind, part of my goal, and uh, took a, cl- a couple of classes as an undergrad, my first of which was with Harry Attridge on the Epistle to the Hebrews. Holy um, cow. Which, like, I didn't know that he literally, <laughs> like, wrote the book, like, the commentary on Hebrews. And I, it was just, like, this spiritually nourish- nourishing, intellectually challenging, just incredibly rich experience. And basically, like that was it. Like I, I was hooked. Yeah. Huh. So this is all this is all Harry's fault, and I remind him <laughs> of that from time to time. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Wow. Was your family environment growing up a religious environment that kind of fostered positive yeah. connections yeah. To, to the Bible at all? Yeah, sure. So I, I I grew up in a in an evangelical covenant church on the North Shore of Chicago, and. Um, it was a, a good church that uh, instilled a sort of um, love love of scripture, if also you know some sort of uh, biblicist leaning sort of you know some some ideas about what the Bible was. You know, I mean, I remember like sort of getting to college with this belief that the Bible was this sort of magic book where if anyone read it with a fair with an open mind, they would come to the rational conclusion that Jesus Christ had died on the cross to save them from their sins. And I would invite my secular friends to like read the Bible and they seemed pretty fair minded and they didn't come to that conclusion. And I, I remember feeling a bit betrayed. I don't know if anyone ever told me that, you know, no one I think I would probably said it exactly that way, but somewhere I had this belief about the Bible. So um, definitely getting into biblical studies and I think just growing up required sort of reconfiguring a good, a good deal of, of those sort of, it's not really the Bible, it's like beliefs about the Bible that were sort of hanging on to it um, and, and sort of figuring out how to uh, set some of those aside that needed to be set aside while still finding scripture to be a, a, a place that God inhabited and a place where I still might be able to meet with God um, and bring my questions and try to sort of um, puzzle out the the sort of deeper questions of life um, in that space. Mm. 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 Yeah, thank you for sharing. So um, t- talk to us about um, your hooked on biblical studies. Um, are the questions that, so your book, The Emergence of, Emergence of Sin, 
This was a book version of your dissertation, is it? That's right? Yeah. Yeah. So were the questions that you were pursuing in the book, were those kind of forming early, maybe before you really knew it, a culmination, or yeah. did, it, did it come kind of later to you? Yeah, I think, I think the, this project really uh, may owe its origins as much to a set of, of TED Talks um, hmm. as to anything that was at first in the Bible. I remember um, seeing a TED Talk on sort of uh, synchronicity and how um, complex systems just tend to sort of sync up. And there was this image that actually did make it into the, into the book of the, uh, the London Millennial Bridge um, or Millennium, mm. Millennium mm-hmm. Bridge, the day that it was open and the way that the sort of the crowd just walking across the bridge and the bridge's um, physical structure and the movement of these people sort of became this sort of feedback loop where, the, I don't know, just sort of randomly the bridge started the, you know, more people were walking to the left <laughs> than to the right and the bridge starts to sway just a little bit. And the more that the bridge starts to sway, the more people have to walk in step with the movement of the bridge and and – and then the thing just keeps feeding back on itself, and eventually you see this bridge like swinging violently back and forth, <laughs> um, and people having a hard time standing up. And anyway, there was that idea. I forget there were several other sort of TED talks on it. The, this huh. idea, I didn't know what emergence was, but I kept yeah. thinking I, I sort of had a list of like TED talks where I thought the huh. same idea just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And then what happened was I was reading Jerome Murphy O'Connor. Um, in uh, his uh, theological anthropology, his Pauline theological anthropology called um, Becoming Human Together, I think. And and he described um, sin this way. Um, and I think I described this in the book as sort of like he was like maddeningly, tantalizingly close, I thought, to, to, mm-hmm. the, to the case. And he describes this, mm-hmm. you know um, – this this system which there there is no dictator who can be blamed for for this he says it's a little bit like i mean these these racists these patriarchal these we can get into some of you know what these concrete systems might look like but are all these sort of unjust systems that sort of catch us up make us start to walk in step as it were mm-hmm. and he said it's it's he, he he used language that sounds exactly like the millennium bridge he said it's it's like a crowd getting swept up in a panic mm-hmm. and i thought this is it then he goes on and says, it is easy to see how this sense of being swayed by a force beyond human control could be transmuted in the mind mm. of simple people into a yeah. belief in a super e- supernatural evil power. And I just thought, what? Wait, wait, wait. You know, um, uh, yes. so all of a sudden we have to call people, you know, simple minded simple. for yeah, um, yeah. where where is that coming from? The moment I saw that, I thought, you mm. mean simple mm. people, simple minded people like Paul? And then the, the, yeah. I guess the final piece was to think, I think Jerome Murphy O'Connor's argument here is that we shouldn't confuse a complex system with a human person. Um, but then the more I started to, to look into biological yes. anthropology, the more I started to think, yeah. well, what else is a human person on the modern scientific account other than a complex person or a complex <laughs> yeah. system rather? Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. And so anyway, that's I think sort of where all this started coming together um, Yeah, yeah, for me. Yeah. So uh, would you say that's kind of the core set of questions and interests that really drove you? Because it really drove you into two, a a multidisciplinary project of both scientific philosophy of science, emergence, and then Pauline theology. 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I my father is a, a Caltech trained uh, chemist. One of my uncles is a, a was a until he retired a, a NASA scientist. Um, sort of scientific worldview was as fundamental for me as um, in certain ways as anything I learned uh, in church. And so, you're saying it felt natural to you. Absolutely, to read these two things together, like the the world that Paul's describing has to be my world. So these sorts of different modes of explanation need to somehow be able to line up. Um, And I think also the other thing that that drove me in this direction was just thinking experientially. I feel like in my own life, I know what it is to be caught up in Mm. patterns of thought, in modes of relating to people, in you know ways Mm. of exploiting and using power that seem, you know, bigger than me. And I don't exactly want to say it's not, certainly it's not that it's not my fault because I participate in those very, in those very systems. But any explanation of our sort of moral lives that doesn't take into account those sorts of systems just seems uh, incomplete to me. Mm -hmm. Good. So let's, let's tack it onto something real specific in Paul's letters uh, as we, as we go broader. So you, in one of the opening chapters, you address what has been presented as a puzzle to modern interpreters of Paul, that he'll use the, the verb to sin or the noun sin, describing stupid things that people do, terrible things people do. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then Paul will also use the noun sin, especially in Romans, as he'll use the noun as an active agent of verbs, sin enslaves, it rules, it deceives, it takes captive. And this has been a puzzle in modern interpretation of Paul. So people explain it in different ways, and it ties into what you're talking about. Is this a mythological entity? Is this an invisible spiritual being with wings flapping around somewhere? Um, oh, with a pitchfork. With a pitchfork, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, talk to us about how people in the modern era have understood that and how that fits into your project. Yeah. So there are basically three different approaches, I think, um, that we can see. One, um, the first would be sort of Boltmann's approach, great sort of modernist um, biblical critic um, and the great demythologizer. And his basic take was Paul may describe sin as a cosmic tyrant, as some sort of um, supernatural agent. But any of us, he thinks, who live in a world with modern technology can no longer entertain these sorts of fantasies. We need to find some other way of reading Paul's text to make it meaningful for us. Um, Namely, we need to make it about our existential struggles to to be moral, to be authentic, to be uh, true to ourselves and, and sort of noble and just. And the the second response, uh, the second sort of approach to that actually comes from one of his doctoral students, Ernst Kazemann, who uh, very much in reaction to this uh, insists, no, one of the first to give us a sort of thoroughly apocalyptic Paul, where this sort of this vibrant spiritual world isn't an incidental feature of Paul's thought that we can just scrape away to make it more amenable to our purposes. But Kazemont says, no, 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 that's actually the sort of fundamental issue for Paul. What it is to be human is to be someone set under lordship, either of sin and evil or of of grace and of God and of love. And 
I mean, this is this is the sort of Bob Dylan, you know, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Kazeman, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, to this day has has sort of uh, ed, has followers, um, Beverly Gaventa, uh, J. Lewis Martin, um, folks like this, um, whose work I find um, uh, really compelling in many ways. The third approach uh, c- comes from the sort of the liberationist camp, um, largely uh, in Latin America. And, and these folks suggest that whatever you might say about sin as sort of individual existential failures or as sort of a matter of cosmic tyranny, maybe the most uh, salient way that we see sin in the modern world is actually in, in as embedded in social institutions. And so here um, there's some uh, Marxist intuitions working. So, you know, it's going to be the capitalist system. It's going to be unjust governments. It's going to be corporations that uh, operate certain ways, uh, racist structures, sexist structures. And their thought is that these sorts of structures aren't just full of sinful people. Um, the sin that we see operating there isn't just an aggregate, just an adding up of the sins of the individuals that are involved, there's actually a remainder left over that you can't really assign other than to the structure and the, indi- and the institutions themselves. And so Oscar Romero and, and others really like lean, lean into that interpretation. And it struck me, I guess, at first glance, uh, sort of, why do we have to choose? <laughs> yes. Each of those seems to capture something really important, actually, about what Paul's trying to say. Is there some way of holding them all together? And really, for me, emergence theory then becomes um, a way of potentially uh, validating um, uh, sort of each of these insights and giving a framework for interrelating them. Mm-hmm. And for you, it all came together in the Millennium Bridge. <laughs> it did. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. And maybe this would be a good moment to then try to really explain what emergence theory is. Yeah. I mean, you gave the example yeah. of the bridge, but even there, maybe really be explicit. What is what is the emergent phenomena happening in the Millennium Bridge? And is there any other examples you like to go to? Yeah, so with emergence, we want to talk about two dynamics. One would be the sort of supervenience uh, relationship where – so basically uh, when you think about emergence, you're thinking about – first of all, you're thinking about the world as being – stratified into various sorts of layers of complexity. And so in the physical sciences, we can think about that as a sort of the the smallest, the micro, the most basic fundamental level is the sort of what particle physics and you know various sorts of physics describe. Then we would move up into the chemical and the thought being, you know, a bunch of atoms doing their things or a bunch of subatomic particles doing their things becomes uh, at some point chemistry, a bunch of, of chemicals doing their thing eventually becomes biology, a certain sort of set of biological things doing their things becomes psychology. A bunch of individual psychologies doing their things become sociology or become social entities, and you can keep on going. And actually, there are multiple different ways of multiple different philosophies of science all agree on this basic feature of the world. And basically, the big question in philosophy of science, or one of the big questions is, how do you relate these layers? And the sort of classic reductionist view would say, well, all that's real is what's really happening at the smallest, most fundamental level. So, you know, we can start all the way up in the social. What's happening in, in a social system? Well, there's nothing real in a social system. That's just a convenient metaphor to use for talking about a bunch of individual psychologies. But when we think about individual psychologies, there's nothing real going on there either. What's really happening is a bunch of neurons firing inside a bunch of people's brains. 
What would be a good example of a social emergent phenomena? Like racism? Yeah, like racism, right? So a sort of reductionist view would say, there's no real thing called race, or maybe there's not even a real thing called racism. That's just a convenient way for talking about, for example, in some studies we have a sort of amygdala excitation, you know, a, a sort of the fight, fight or flight response um, part of the brain sort of lighting up in certain social situations when you see an unfamiliar face to trigger this uh, response. They say, oh, you can just see it's it's uh, this is actually just brain function. And the brain function is just chemistry and the chemistry is just physics. And and the only thing that's real are these are these very, very lowest levels. Emergence suggests instead that these higher levels actually are irreducible to explaining the world as it actually is, that these aren't just convenient ways of talking about large sets of smaller entities, but that chemicals are real and biological animals are, are real and appropriate to talk about as, as units um, and not just uh, as shorthand for talking about piles of particles. But it is true still to say, an emergentist would want to make sure it is, they would say it's important to still say that a chemical is composed of atoms and subatomic particles that do obey the laws of physics. And it is appropriate to say that, for example, um, racism is, is going to have sort of neurobiological substructure. It shouldn't be surprising that you can see in an fMRI machine, you can almost see racism happen, as it were. That's a simplification, right? But that the world is sort of stitched together this way. So those relationships, the sort of dependency of higher level, higher order social entities, say, on psychology or psychologies dependent on biologies, um, those relationships are called relationships of supervenience. But then what's interesting then is then you have this other half, which is this downward causation piece where it's not just that my psychology emerges from my biology, but then on the emergence account, my psychology actually sort of constrains my biology in ways that change sort of how my biology works, which I take it is exactly what you can see in that fMRI machine where the social institution of American racism is actually changing the brain chemistry of, mm -hmm. of American uh, mm -hmm. uh, patients. I mean, you tap into the, the mind-body yeah. relation in debate, but I, for, even though it's actually kind of difficult to describe, it's somehow it because we all know basically what conscious yeah. mind is. I was going to say, this is getting really dense and I can hear people <laughs> through their headphones starting to <laughs> kind of check out. But the mind thing, that brings it, it's really practical. That's right. That as an organism, we are a complex, I, I don't know how you would describe it, but we're a bunch of... Complex biological systems. Yeah. yeah. But we think of ourselves as kind of one thing, yeah. but in reality, we're like a super organism. Yeah. And we wouldn't reduce ourselves to just, well, I'm just bacteria and cells and, and different things. I think of myself as a whole. Although some people do, like you said, Matt, a reductionist approach. And you come across this in the modern West, is people who disbelieve in even the reality of their own consciousness. Mm. Yeah. In theory, they wouldn't in their real life experience, but in theory, they would say, well, my consciousness is just a byproduct, yeah. a happy byproduct of my biology. There was a This American Life episode not too long ago that ran exactly down this road and basically suggested, 
I think perhaps a little bit – I mean I love This American Life, but I think it was a little bit intellectually irresponsible <laughs> actually. Uh-huh. The, the, the extent to which they just said, look, this is just basic scientific fact that you are – are sort of an illusion and all that's real mm. is mm. Uh, your brain is producing this illusion of you, which mm. you're pretty attached to, but otherwise like really isn't a thing mm-hmm. that is out there. That's a problematic sort of way of th- thinking about it, I think. The other problematic view, um, which is maybe more prevalent in religious circles, is the dualistic approach, mm-hmm. which is to say, sure, my, my brain exists. And uh, if I thought I was in some sense just my a bunch of complex biological systems oh shoot maybe i'd fall into the reductionist world and start to think i'm just a a fiction of my own fictional imagination but the dualist would then say no no no, i know what i am i am a soul and as i heard one dualist suggest as a slogan the brain he suggested is just an electrified piece of meat your soul uses to think with like a strong hmm. sort of <laughs> dualistic view would say, you know, there's this whole other yes. thing called soul that is sort of incomprehensible or undescribable on scientific terms that sort of can save you from reductionism, but I think leaves you in a place where, yeah, it's just odd that there would be this really huge part of our world that's that totally defies sort of any sort of scientific explanation or even description or, yeah. That's helpful. So here's, I would like to hear back from you if I understand what you're what you're getting at. But one thing that came to me, I was reading your book, is this is a lot of this is debating about what at what level does something become what we would call, quote, real? Yeah. So if I have this, my electrified piece of meat (laughs) (laughs) in my brain, but it is generating this thing that I experience as my mind and consciousness and emotions, it's fully dependent in this moment on that electrified piece of meat. The, The piece of meat constitutes... It makes up what I experience as mind and consciousness. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's not reducible to any one little cells of the piece of electrified meat in my brain. And so there, it's a different category of real. That's a phrase I kept coming back to in my mind as I was reading through the book is emergence theory is a way of saying higher level entities are real, but they're real in a way that's emergent, <laughs> or the, uh, they're in a different category of real than the level that they emerge from. That was the way that my electrified piece of meat was making sense of what you're saying. <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's quite right. And I suppose then the only thing I would want to add to that is to say that everything you care about is only real in that sense. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. So uh, I forget who, who made this list, but somebody has some list of, you know, haircuts and and dollars and <laughs> and humans and yeah. you know nations and whatever you know mm, all of these mm. things i guess are only real in the sense that they emerge from complex social structures that give them meaning and uh, and then from the bi- from the physical things below that so it, it strikes me as a bizarre move to try to say that's anything less than I don't know what, what's, what's more real than that you start to realize everything you care about is only that real that's right. It's also and, striking me that as you try to be reductionistic and you get smaller and smaller and smaller, it becomes less understandable and almost mm-hmm. less real to me. Mm-hmm. Like once you get into the quantum realm, all of a sudden we're like, well, I don't know. What is that? Yes. <laughs> what actually would count as most real then? It starts to like just sort of slip through your fingers. And some of the philosophers of chemistry that I actually read on this said, 
strict reductionism sort of depends on a, a sort of fantasy version of physics, right, in which maybe at, at base level we've got tiny little balls of stuff. But quantum mechanics severely uh, complicates that view. Yeah. Okay, so that's, sup- that's supervenience, that real entities exist that aren't reducible to the parts that they're made up of at a lower level. And for example, you. For example, you. <laughs> and for example, the economy. Yeah, that's right. Or, or for example, sin. Yeah. Um, but then in the, in the other part of that, you said, is downward causation. Um, my mind, which is constituted by my electrified piece of meat, but not reducible to it, my mind can actually influence the shape of the piece of meat. Yeah. And of my whole body by like what I eat and what I think about and my mental habits that actually shape the physical structure of my brain. So these higher level entities exercise deep influence on every level that's below them too. That's a key part of what you're saying. Right. And that's part of, I think, part of the defense of even wanting to call them real. Um, Mm. If they didn't have any sort of causal powers, it would be sort of like, well, okay, I guess if you want to call that real, that's fine. Um, But uh, it must be able to do something. And certainly that's the big question Mm. when it comes to persons is we think that people, um, persons are things that are able to do something in the world. Um, and if I'm able to do something, then, um, then yeah, my mind that emerges from that electrified piece of meat um, can then electrify that piece of meat in various sorts of ways, right? It, um, and, that, and, that, and you have to be very – it does get complicated in trying to figure out exactly how that works, but – um, in broad strokes, that's right. It's this feedback loop where this thing that emerges from this complex system can then um, constrain and, 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 and act back on that, those basic uh, complex structures from which it emerged. So, so all the way back when Rudolf Bultmann says, when he reads Paul talking about sin as a tyrant that enslaves and rules and does things to you, um, he, he thinks simple-minded People might think of sin that way, but we know it's about my own personal crisis of moral decision-making. We could reduce it down to just the individual moral level. Correct, correct. So um, what you would want to respond is to say, well, what if what it requires for something to be a real person is we're talking about a different level. What if Paul has a different level of person uh, or entity in mind? Um, when he imagines sin enslaving or deceiving a person or a whole group of people. So it's, it's about what level of something being a, a, a person, a will and volition, what level are we going to attach sin to? You had so many great chapters in this book, but, so, uh, but you, you focus on the concept of a superorganism, something that's real that you could call a, a single organism or a person, but that is made up of I love the beehive example, but you can use whatever example you want. But a superorganism, talk to me about that. Yeah, so I think, I think you're right. I think thinking about in social insects is exactly the right way to think about this. When it comes to a beehive, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, which is the organism, the hive or the individual bee? Uh. A, a bee can't reproduce. Uh, most individual bees can't reproduce. Only the hive really can, can huh. reproduce. Um, the individual bees aren't genetically distinct. Um, they're all genetic copies of, of, of the queen. So, uh, you know, entomologist uh, E.O. Wilson suggests that it's better to think about 
individual bees the way you'd think about individual cells in your body. Um, you, uh, mm-hmm. you have a mm. bunch of different cells, um, but they all contain the same DNA, and they all sort of express, uh, help mm. you be you mm. and do what you do. Um, and he's, which really starts mm-hmm. to sound like, man, maybe the hive, maybe the hive is the organism, and each bee is sort of like a cell. And the ways that they differentiate from one another are sort of the ways that like a skin cell is different from a blood cell, not the way that like one human being is different from another. Um, but the whole point here is that, um, well, it's sort of an open question and, and neither answer seems obviously wrong. But certainly the larger, the larger option seems totally plausible. Maybe the superorganism is, um, is the right level to be like the individual. That's the, that's the real thing, which I think opens us up for thinking about larger social bodies that we might be a part of, which ends up getting us, I think, actually pretty close to some of the language that Paul uses. Our concept of what is a person or an organism is really depends on your vantage point within the hierarchy of complexities. Yeah. Um, if you were a cell living in a human body <laughs> and had your own consciousness, you would yeah. be, you wouldn't really be thinking about yeah. the collection of cells having consciousness. Yeah, You'd just be right. doing your thing. Yeah. yeah. If you were just a bee going from flower to flower, you yeah. imagine the bee having its own consciousness, whatever that is. Yeah. But uh, yeah. No, it's helpful. It's helpful as an analogy. I, actually, I, I found myself, after reading the book, going throughout my days, I would have this meta-reflection. I would be like, I want a cup of coffee right now. I'd be walking by a coffee shop. And then I just began to think about coffee's a big deal in Portland, huge part of the food economy. And then I started thinking about, why do I desire certain kinds of coffee? Like, that's not innate to me. I hated my first cup of coffee uh, when I was like, whatever, had it when I was 12 or 13. So actually, this desire for certain kinds of coffee is a fabricated one from my environment and my lived experience. And then there's certain kinds of advertising and certain kinds of aesthetic of certain shops that's designed by an aesthetic of port. These are systems. And so then I would just like be having a cup of coffee and be like, I'm just a bee right now <laughs> doing what I'm programmed to do. Yeah. And, but yet, I am a responsible moral agent. And those aren't opposites to each other. It's just a wider framework. Uh, just very helpful. Very helpful for me. Yeah. So I think the crux of this then is how does this relate to Paul's, yeah. how he talks about sin yeah. um, and its influence on us? Mm-hmm. Maybe speak to that a little bit, Matt. Yeah. So I think one of the sort of pivotal texts for me is Romans 6.6, 6, which talks about the body of sin which I had never reflected on too much until I had sort of done some of this thinking about the science. And I started to think, well, what on earth is the body of sin? And thought, well, I mean, one like obvious answer would be it's analogous to the body of Christ. Why Mm. doesn't anybody read it like that? Uh, It turns out Mm -hmm. Anders Nygren uh, did Mm. back in the day, but very few people have read it that way. But I started to think, well, Mm. if sin is a person, then might sin not have a body? And if sin had a body, what sort of body would it be? Well, it might really be something analogous in certain ways to the body of Christ. That is that 
we might sort of make up collectively the body of sin. And as our desires are being Mm -hmm. fundamentally shaped, or we might say from a moral point of view, misshapen by certain sorts of social perversions. I mean, Augustine thinks that what you love is actually what you desire. This is actually central to like your moral formation. So once we see a sort of market economy, you know, the onslaught of advertising starting to fundamentally uh, shape the way what it is that we desire, we can start to see, oh, here it is. I'm starting to become a sort of part of some larger entity, which I take it Paul is describing as the body of sin. Mm-hmm. And so Paul has some, his mind has been shaped in such a way that he can envision as a personal entity a corporate human superorganism and call it sin and talk about it as an agent. Uh, you were the first person who drawn my attention to Nigren's work about the body of sin as like this anti-Christ, <laughs> as like an anti-body of Christ. Mm. Uh, and we, you know, maybe it means grappling anew with the imagery of body of Christ, which is on the surface more familiar to many readers of Paul's letters because he uses it all over the place. Yeah. But we wouldn't say, well, therefore Christ, the new human, isn't real because he is constituted by his body. No one, no one takes that away from Paul's phrase, the body of Christ. Maybe some people do. Maybe some people do. I don't know. But I'm, I'm just trying to play out yeah. the analogy, the body of sin, the body of Christ. It begs a question, of course, then, who, who or what is that, quote, person? Who's the head of the mm. body of sin that's the equivalent to the head of the body of Christ in, in Paul's thought? And... What should that be in our thought, too? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. So I think it's important that we say that there are analogies to draw, but there are also important disanalogies. There are ways that these two bodies are very different from one another. For example, I don't think that strictly within Christian theology, we would think of Christ as constituted by his body, by the body of Christ, that is. It's not like no church and then there's no Christ anymore. Mm -hmm. But we might think about the body of sin that way. And so trying to keep this too far, not from straying too far into the theological nerddom route, but there (laughs) are, well, I'll try try this out. (laughs) So there are in certain ways of thinking about the doctrine of God, you can talk about God having two different natures, consequent and antecedent. (laughs) What those mean are the antecedent nature of God is God's sort of prior uh, prior existence as sort of the ground of all being. But then God also has this consequent sort of existence in uh, along these lines uh-huh. of theological reflection, which is uh-huh. God in relation to God's creation uh, as it unfolds. And I mm. think we would say if that's mm. true about God and therefore true about Christ, we would then say that, that sin would be like Christ in that it has this consequent nature. It's part of the unfolding of creation. Mm. But it would not share in God's mm. antecedent nature this sort of uh, mm-hmm. prior existence. Um, that is, sin's, sin's just mm-hmm. a creature like us. And I take it no sinners, then there is no sin, mm-hmm. at least on this, mm-hmm. on this reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but no church, there still is Christ. How is that related to C.S. Lewis, you know, had this metaphor that appeared in a couple of his writings about evil as a parasite on the good, namely that it doesn't actually have its own existence. Its existence depends on something prior to it, namely the God's good world. And so in that sense, it it actually isn't really 
a thing. <laughs> it's a thing that exists only as a uh, distortion of the ultimately real thing. Is that, is that related to what you're talking about? I think it is. And here I'll admit that there's a bit of a tension in, in my own thought on this matter. I think sometimes I'm inclined mm. to think, mm. nah, sin's just as real as any other creature. What Lewis is pointing at and what Karl Barth also um, would be sort of in line with this thinking is that yeah. sin may be less yeah. real even than, than a creature. Mm. Mm. I'll leave that mm. as an open question. But at any rate, what it isn't is it's not as real as God. <laughs> what it certainly isn't is we don't have a dualistic yeah, sure. world here where there's, there's the angel on yeah. one shoulder and there's the devil on the yeah. other or there's, you know, God, the power of good and sin or the yeah. devil as the power of evil. And they're sort of mm. – they're equals, equal and opposite forces. Um, there is a priority to the good. Mm. I think that's a helpful corrective for us because if we're – it depends on what sorts of dis- lines we're trying to draw. If we're drawing a line between natural – on the one hand and supernatural on the other, then we'd be inclined to put ourselves on the natural side and maybe sin, any sort of cosmic power, demons, etc., and God and angels on the supernatural side. But Paul didn't know anything about a natural or supernatural division. That was invented at the, during the Enlightenment. If instead we're drawing a Pauline distinction between created things on the one hand and the creator on the other, then I think we're working with categories that are more familiar to Paul. And in that case, sin definitely goes on our side of the line, maybe even a little further <laughs> further away from the real maybe than we are if, if Bart or Lewis is right. But I think that really helps keep our minds straight about what sort of thing we're talking about even when we try to take Paul's mythological language seriously. Yeah. In that sense, the body of Christ metaphor is Christ is on the God-creator side of that equation in Paul's thought, and therefore prior to any body through which he manifests himself in the world. That's the mismatch part of the analogy where the body of sin is a distortion of what ought to be the body of the creator, namely uh, his people. But what seems really important to me about suggesting that we're already a part of a body of sin is that I think otherwise, when we think about the body of Christ, our modern individualism makes us imagine that, well, before we join the body of Christ, we're sort of free agents. Mm. (laughs) And the weird thing that the body of Christ is, is that now we start to participate in this weird sort of communal life that's sort of foreign to who we naturally are as free agents. Uh, This is where Kazemon is right. Paul's imagination is, no, you're always already part of a sort of social existence. You're always being constrained by some sort of moral community, some sort of social community. What changes when you join the body of Christ is you're transferred from one social body to another rather than going from being a free agent in, into this new social arrangement. Yeah. That's good. Ba- back to my coffee analogy then. I, I am enslaved to the body of coffee <laughs> in that way. I, I, I am. Right, I, help me understand that one. <laughs> well, it's just that I didn't naturally, I was enculturated and socialized into yeah. my need But there's for no super organism, my... which we would call like... No. Well, I guess there's a... Yeah, I don't well, I'm picking a maybe morally neutral one. Okay. It may be, you know, the coffee industrial complex may not be quite uh, complex enough uh, to qualify as an integrated superorganism, uh, but it may be, you know, on its way there. Yeah, it's on yeah. its way. So when did sin emerge to become uh, its own thing? When we get to Genesis 
chapter three, mm. we encounter a creature that seems mm. to have existed, mm. which already is part of this whole body of sin and death. Mm. And mm. oh, that's a terrible question. By which I mean that's a great question. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> that's the sort of question you hope no one asks. I think this would require. Uh, now, the Paul's language, Paul deals with this in, in Romans uh, 5. Paul's thought is that when sin comes, sin enters in and then exercises dominion. I'm inclined to think of that as sin entering in through Adam and Eve's transgressions and then exercising dominion uh, thereafter. Uh, I, I recognize that that changes the, the logic of the narrative of, of which sort of comes first. But uh, for my money, at least, I'm already thinking about the sort of Garden of Eden narrative uh, in more sort of poetic uh, sort of sort of terms. So I'm willing to make my peace with that. But I certainly recognize that I think Genesis three uh, has a, a slightly different has a, has a different sort of angelology or demonology, sort of different understanding of the origin of evil. But but man, that serpent is hard to pin down. That serpent is not named as Satan. It's not named as sin. It's not, right? So it is a slippery thing uh, regardless. Uh, but, but your point is well taken. Um, I think it does require some, some sort of rejiggering of how this works. Well, and you probably appreciate that coming from an evangelical background that the, uh, yeah, the paradigm is we were created into this, this system that already was in place with with good and evil, and then we got to choose between the two. And it sounds like you're wrestling through maybe mm. a more a different nuance of it, which is mm. that us wrestling through it and making these poor decisions and creating that culture, then sin emerges out of. That's mm-hmm. helpful. Let's think about it this way. Adam's decision is different than mine. Adam chooses okay. disobedience, but Adam doesn't choose disobedience within a social structure that sort of helps him do so. <laughs> oh, sure. There was no mm. Or there that was inclines no him yet. to do so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. so I guess that would be the sort of distinction I'm trying yeah. to make, is that sin in Paul's sort of vivid sense of this sort of tyrant, um, ah, Adam's not okay. under sin's dominion as he chooses to sin. You and I and every other human we've ever interacted with uh, has been under the dominion of sin as we choose sin. Yeah. But is there a place for you then for some other type of power, as Paul would call the powers and authorities? Mm. That's right. Yeah, I'd, I, I did want to ask you if you would say there's an analogy between Paul's concept of the superorganism sin and his language about the principalities, powers, and authorities, Be- because there's actually a, a related puzzle there. Paul's language about the powers, he can use the same vocabulary to talk about the Roman governor. <laughs> to talk about the high priestly system that killed Jesus, and to talk about what we would call spiritual powers, but it's the same vocabulary, which seems just like the sin vocabulary can refer to something we would call human to something we would call cosmic. I'm curious if, if you've given thought to that or how you would yeah, talk well, about Yeah, well, I suggest in the book that we can understand the ancient goddess Roma as uh, one of these sort of emergent entities who I would take to be, I mean, this is the goddess who herself sort of embodies the Roman Empire um, in some ways that Paul may have in mind as he's thinking about Rome as a sort of single entity. 
I was trying to be circumspect in a in in the book as a scholar is supposed to be and be careful about you know not getting too wide ranging. But here among friends, yeah, I will happily say, yeah, no, I'm I'm quite inclined to try to think about um, certainly uh, some amount of of what Paul's doing there with this language along exactly these lines. Um, and I think my exploration of the sort of cult of the goddess Roma and even some of the ways that you know ancient Roman philosophers are talking about the Roman Empire or certainly the Roman army as an extension of the body of the emperor. And the emperor is the sort of animating spirit of the body, which is the empire. In that sense, I think I suggest at one point that Nero, that some of these more sort of egomaniacal uh, emperors may in a certain sense be a sort of incarnation, as it were, of this goddess Roma. I think it makes a lot of sense. As you said before, Paul has ancient reasons and ancient resources for thinking about social bodies this way, these Stoic philosophers who are thinking about the Roman Empire in exactly these terms are, are chief among them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in as much as it's, it's the same intellectual resources for Paul, the same basic ideas in his context that help him, I think, think about sin and think about powers and authorities this way, why not um, exploit the same opportunity for us in thinking on emergent terms in both contexts as well? It's really helped me actually feel like Paul is actually a little more sane as he looks out at the world than perhaps Rudolf Boltmann was <laughs> in the sense of being being able to actually <laughs> account for mm. the whole of, of my human experience, yes. which is a social collective experience as right. much as it is my own individual experience of life and my moral decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. who doesn't have moral conflict over what their governing structures are doing in the world? Yeah. And... It's hard to pin them to one person. It's a whole system. And I don't know, maybe a, a reductionist or a, somebody like Rudolf Bultmann could talk about those structures, but they didn't read Paul uh, in those terms. And so that's <clears throat> is really helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been very fun to talk with you. If you were to, you know, uh, you're in a, a local uh, church or uh, you're invited, you know, to like a, a campus group, Christian campus group, and uh, you're trying to sh- share what you think matters about these ideas, you know, in the mm-hmm. evening talk to some college students or to a local church. How would you, what are some ways that you um, would encourage just a, a local community of Jesus followers to take these ideas seriously? I think for me, what's most important is to help people see themselves as fundamentally socially constrained. See, I think the mythology that we're, that we're bought into is a myth of individuality, <laughs> a myth of individualism. Right. And those are the things I think that need to be demythologized. Right. And so I'd want to help people see rightly the ways that we are not our own masters. We are constrained mm-hmm. by our social institutions, by the communities we choose to invest in, by the patterns of thought we choose to, uh, to fall into or rather don't all that intentionally choose. And so therefore, th- think really seriously about our participation in certain sorts of systems and to take seriously our culpability um, when we participate in racist, sexist, uh, you know, classist uh, systems of, of various sorts. 
But then the other thing that I want to say, and of course, you, you pose this as a hypothetical. Um, I'm a vineyard pastor. This is my, my world. The other thing that's really important to me is to say to people, look, all three of these ways of thinking about sin are important um, and valuable um, because they point to different parts of the Christian life. It's important to think about sin at the individual level, um, my own sort of my individual uh, misdeeds, the ways that I harm other people uh, in, in the world, and, and to think about sort of personal discipleship and sometimes therapy, right, is a really important part of that. Like working on my psychology, that's actually really important and part of my discipleship. But it's also important to recognize the sort of large social structures and to strive for justice, you know, uh, in response to the sort of malformations of social structures. And that's also an important part of discipleship and it's an important part of participating in the coming of of God's kingdom. But it's also important at the same time, I think, to and appropriate to, I'm in a vineyard church. We're good charismatics. I mean, you got to like recognize <laughs> some spirits and pray for deliverance yeah, and yes. yeah. cast out demons yeah. and, yeah. you know, take seriously the sort yeah. of the spiritual dimension of what's going on. But I would just hope to, to be inviting people, whether it's through, you know, whatever sort of reflection they're engaged in, to be looking for ways to hold their whole world together so that they can live forward in, in all three of those sorts of modes. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, that's, yeah, really helpful response. Matt, this has been a great privilege. It's really fun to talk with you. Um, and thank you again for the many years and sleepless nights of writing that book. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't just stimulating for me. It was immensely helpful. Oh, man. Tim was talking about it constantly for, <laughs> while he was reading it. Just was blowing his mind yeah, one so, hour after the next. Yeah. So thank you for the effort you put into that. I, I trust that it will do what God was calling it to do through you as you wrote that. Well, thank you for our, the time and attention you gave to it. It's on, honestly, it's it's always a, a serious honor when when someone takes the time to to really invest themselves in a set of ideas. And uh, yeah, this has been a really fun conversation. So thanks. Yeah, likewise, Matt. Thanks again for taking the time. Yeah, be well. great i'm i'm slightly concerned huh. that it was too intellectual oh interesting i kind of i mean it was it took every amount of <laughs> focus with yes. my electrified meat well i especially yeah the conversation about emergence theory is theoretical <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but i i think the brain analogy is helpful we use the word brain to talk about a physical thing uh -huh. in my skull, uh, but we use the word mind to talk about the thing that, that emerges that emerges from it, yeah. and the mind, uh, I wouldn't experience my mind without my brain, Yeah. but my mind also can form thoughts and ideas that exert influence on my brain and body. Mm -hmm. So there's the and philosophical part of that. That's, that's right. Tough. That's kind of complex. Then there's another yeah. part of it, which is our... Um, uh, I guess maybe the fear of are we dismissing yeah. some sort of real other type of power right, by right. just calling it 
emergence. And I think what I'm Mm. reflecting on is, you know, by using this language and talking this way, it feels at first like maybe we're taking Mm. the devil or Satan less seriously. Mm -hmm. But in a way, Mm. this actually starts to make powers of evil and uh, sin way more serious. And more real. And more real. I think so. I I think that's why I found it helpful was first it puts back on the table what is the definition of a real person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe I'm just taking an assumed definition of a personal being and saying, therefore, a spiritual being must, like sin or the powers, principalities and powers in Paul's thought, why am I taking it for granted that I know what kind of being that that is? Maybe sure. it's a being kind of that exists in a way that's a very different kind of personal being than I am. Yeah. And yeah, Matt's work shows that there's actually lots of different ways to talk about a personal being being real, Yeah. but that isn't a, a person like I am. Right. That's, that's helpful to me. And to your point, I think it actually makes these personal realities more of a present and visible force in my day-to-day life Yeah. than, yeah, whatever. I, I just think of silly medieval concepts of like reptilian yeah. creatures flapping sure. about that are invisible. But, but the comfort in that is there's there's this meta story yes. that yeah. helped me understand. And I feel like you guys are kind of trying to, trying to take that away from me a little bit. Yeah, that, I hear that. I, I lumped you into his thesis project. But like, but yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah, and even uh, notice when we when does the we, devil exist? Yeah, when we asked him about that, I, and I think he's he's working out his own way of talking about that. I think I still am too. Mm. But for me, what's helpful is that he's forcing me to think about it mm. in ways that I haven't before. Yeah, and then I go back to texts in Paul or Genesis, and I realize like, oh yeah, that quite doesn't say what mm. I assumed <laughs> that it said. In whatever way. Yeah the Satan, the devil mm-hmm. exists, mm-hmm. What, we're, what we're not saying is that he doesn't exist. What we're saying right. is yeah. That, yeah. that there is a power, yes. there is a creature, there is an entity, yeah. there's yeah. something. That's right. But what it is, yeah. how it came to be, yeah. Yeah. these are all things that are way beyond our yeah. ability to fully yeah. comprehend. Or, or that, that I shouldn't think that the simplest uh, explanation to me is therefore the right one. Mm. Reality is extremely complex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the biblical literature that talks about these things is actually fairly nuanced and, mm. and complex. Um, we've talked about this. You know, the the spiritual powers of evil, like the snake, for example, in Genesis 3, the power and agency of that being becomes real in and through a human decision. Mm. The power of that being is fully connected to humans who are under its influence and acting upon it. And then right after page three, it's the human actions that become the foreground of the story. Right. I think that's saying something. Yeah. Well, couldn't you say in, that in the same way, if humans on a collective level yeah. uh, who are m- making poor decisions yeah. are like, you know, swaying the Millennium Bridge yeah, in a way right. that it becomes its, its yeah. own yeah. power yeah. Yeah. that then becomes its own super organism. Yeah. In that same way, yeah. couldn't the divine council yeah. rebelling mm. create the same sort of yeah. phenomena, Correct. That, which I, then does pre-exist humanity in some way? Oh, I understand. 
Because the divine counsel is tied very much up with this vision, and it's right there in Genesis 1, right on through the end. That It's a parallel the, story. The heavenly realm is a mirror yeah. of the earthly realm. I know. I want to create this kind of, he used the word ontology, ontology mm-hmm. just of that it was first... It existed. It was, and then yeah. we come onto the scene later. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you, that's right. but well, in Genesis mirroring. one, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm are both created. Yeah, neither one of them is prior. <laughs> they were brought in. They're brought into existence yeah. in the same narrative, and they're mirrors of each other. Yeah, that's true. And so that, therefore, a human rebellion is corresponding to a heavenly rebellion. The heavenly realities are usually in the background, hmm. but then occasionally they peek out. The book of Daniel that we've been exploring is a great example where he sees empires warring, and then he has a vision, and he sees Gabriel of the heavenly host saying, yeah, man, in three weeks I was fighting with the prince of Persia hmm. up here. So the biblical authors assume a heavenly, earthly, mirrored reality when it comes to evil, and... There you go. And Matt's work has given me some very helpful categories to critique my previously held assumptions Mm -hmm. about how I read and even think about any of this in the Bible. So I don't think he thinks he's offering his last word, but Mm. he definitely is pushing us to to think and imagine wider, which is very helpful for me. Very, very cool. Yeah. What a cool guy. That was a great conversation. I enjoyed doing that. Uh, if you're following along with this podcast, maybe for the first time, this is The Bible Project. We're a nonprofit, we're primarily an animation studio, I suppose, but we but we exist to show the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we have animations, explainer videos, we've got this podcast, study notes, and it's all free. And you can find it on our website, thebibleproject.com, and it's made possible because of thousands of generous supporters, which is incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. Hey, this is Kevin Abram from Houston, Texas. Um, I first heard about The Bible Project when I started attending Bible college. And my favorite thing about The Bible Project is that they create meaningful content that's very vivid, very enriching, and full of truth. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, and more resources at thebibleproject.com.